Welcome to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We originally recorded this show in March of 2021, and it shines a light on several local women we really want you to know about. Coming up on Seasoned, you'll hear from three women that work at Sanctuary Kitchen in New Haven. Now, Sanctuary Kitchen is not a traditional restaurant. But its community of cooks are doing a brisk curbside and delivery business and continue to offer their multicultural dishes at City Seed Farmers Market. We'll catch up with a founder, a culinary manager, and one of their chefs later in the show. But first, our guest Anna Francis Gas is a Connecticut chef and recipe tester. She's the author of the cookbook, Heirloom Kitchen. What started as a project to document the unwritten recipes of her mother principally her meatball recipe, turned into a cookbook preserving the heirloom recipes of 40 immigrant women from all over the world. Anna Francis Gus, thank you so much for joining us on Seasons. It is such a pleasure to meet you. Same here. I'm so excited to be here today. Thank you so much for having me. We love a great story that begins with a meatball. Don't all great stories start with a meatball? I should, right? Basically what happened is I would say at this point now, about five years ago, I came to a very stark realization that I did not know how to make any of my mom's dishes. So a little bit about me. I am a classically trained uh, chef. I went to the French Culinary Institute in New York City. I became a recipe tester. I worked uh, for Martha Stewart Living, Whole Foods, uh, Food 52. And I'm also, you know, just a recipe developer and recipe tester. So when you don't know how to make your mom's recipes and that's your occupation, it's a little bit embarrassing. (laughs) So I said to my mom, you know, we really need to get these recipes written down because these really are family heirlooms. And also, you know, my children had gotten older and I realized how much they really valued my mom's food. So it was like, I needed these recipes for the future generations. It was kind of like a Sunday project. We'd get into, you know, her kitchen when she was making dinner. She'd yell, she'd direct with a wooden spoon. And I was like furiously writing everything down. And then we kind of got it done. Like we got all the family favorites written in a book. And then I kind of realized this is a service that I could provide. All of my friends are first gen. They all have, you know, parents that come from someplace other than the United States. So why not offer this as a service? I get to meet amazing immigrant women, learn how to make these homeland dishes, and my friends are going to get a typed up perfect, you know, recipe. So I sent out an email thinking, okay, you know, four or five people will respond. Everyone responded. To start, I had 10 interviews set up. So I was like, okay, this is going to be fun. So I actually was like, this is going to be a blog. I'm going to blog it up like everybody's blogging it up and it's going to be a lot of fun. But what happened was after I got through my first 10 friends, it was like, I was like kitchen hopping because then everybody was recommending their friend. And, you know, one woman's like, oh, you got to, you got to cook with my friend, Sherry. And then Sherry would say, you got to cook with my friend, Dina. So I just kept jumping from kitchen to kitchen. As a recipe tester, I do take a lot of work with cookbooks. And a friend of mine was like, Anna, you recipe test so many cookbooks. Like, why aren't you writing your own cookbook? This would be the perfect cookbook. Yeah. And it, you know, it became um, a real deal book in April, 2019. Yellow Kitchen was born. Congratulations. I mean, what a great story just to come from that. I wanted to ask you too, it's kind of a little bit woven in there as, as someone who is professionally trained, you know, going to culinary school and, and learning, I guess, I don't want to say the proper way, but, you know, we would consider classically French, this is the way you do things. How different was working with these immigrant women and these grandmothers and these mothers about 
you know, the recipes, the, the, the techniques, was it different from being classically trained? Yeah, it was like the polar opposite. Exactly. <laughs> it's like going from, you know, measuring two grams to, you know, oh, let me throw this jar of whatever in, throw, you know, some salt from over my shoulder. Yeah, it was totally opposite. But my training, I wouldn't even so much say culinary school, but just as a recipe developer and tester is what really set me up for success because it was like, okay, we can do this. And one thing I realized really early on is whereas your mother's recipes might seem like complete chaos, there is a method to their madness. Right. So it might look like they're just throwing it something into the pot and they are, but they're throwing in that same pinch, that same handful every single time, which is why it tastes the same every day. And you know, like this is my mom's, you know, goulash, you know what it tastes like because she does make it the same every time. So all I really needed to do was get them to slow down. And then, of course, when they were pinching, I was like, no, 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 we're going to do a teaspoon. Is that enough? Uh, you know, a handful. Is that a cup? And just really getting. And they were in. I mean, these women were so honored and humbled to be included. Yeah. And, and this is even before they knew it was going to be a cookbook. I was just some crazy girl, you know, over at their house wanting to learn how to make tamales. <laughs> you know, it wasn't like they really even thought like, oh, you know, this is going to be my, you know, my big break. It was just like, let me have fun with this girl that wants to learn my food. So they slowed down. They let me videotape. They let me call them many times afterwards if I had questions when I was retesting. But no, it, it really worked out well. And another question I get all the time is, were the women secretive? And, and they were not. Open-armed, um, wanting me to get catch everything, wanting it to be perfect, wanting it to taste just like theirs. I got a, a really good group of ladies. Did any of them test you? Were they like, okay, now you make it the way I just showed you? No, no. I would go home and then, you know, my recipe tester hat would immediately go on. I would remake the recipe, uh, make sure it tasted like theirs. If it was someone local, sometimes I'd actually bring them some days. Did I get it? Is this right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was fun um, for the women that, you know, I didn't, you know, when I went out to San Francisco, I didn't have that option. But for the Connecticut people, I, if I could drive to their house and have them taste whatever I had made, I did. Perfect. I love it. Since you're talking about recipes, can you tell us about some of them? Um, there's one from Italy. Gina's Brodo di Mamma e Polpette. Yeah, so that's my mom. Meatballs with tomato sauce. And those yeah. are the meatballs. Those are the meatballs that, you know, really started it all. So, and we joke because my mom's hands are actually on the cover. So we call her the cover girl. She has the most recipes in the book. And, you know, I'm not going to lie. She might have a little bit of an ego about it. We're going to have to, we're going to have to dig into that. I don't know. Um, no, my mom is actually an incredibly humble person. Always, you know, a cheerleader of mine, which is wonderful. Very proud of the book though. That's an incredibly important family recipe. Uh, my mom has a certain method, which is in Calabria where my mother's from the meatballs aren't fried or baked. They're poached in the sauce. So it's just the way my grandmother made them. Her grandmother made them. And it's just important to me in the sense that when you or your family comes from another part of the world, what you're eating at your, at your family table is really a important demonstration of where you came from. You know, growing up, I, I wasn't FaceTiming with my grandparents every day. I wasn't, you know, really having that day-to-day -day interaction. So how was I learning who they were? It was through their food and culture that my parents 
we're mimicking here in most cultures, you know, a lot of things are tied to holiday and you eat in certain things on holidays. So it was, it was meaningful that we were calling Italy, let's say on Christmas Eve, and we had the same things on our table that they had there. And that thread is what really kept us tethered and in, in a meaningful way, even though we really couldn't see or talk to each other on a daily basis. We're talking to Anna Francis Goss, Connecticut chef and author of Heirloom Kitchen, heritage recipes and family stories from the tables of immigrant women. In the food world, there's often a focus on the authenticity and appropriation of recipes and cuisines. Uh, the recipes in this book are authentic to their contributors as they remember them. But as Anna says, your mother may have made it differently, and that's okay. I asked her to talk about authenticity. Yeah, I kind of think the word authenticity is like a curse word. It's a very loaded term. And I think, you know, especially right now, what's going on in society, um, at least in, you know, in the food media world where people are very passionate about their homeland dishes and who's making them and why and how, um, and are they doing it correctly and with respect? So I think the first thing is whenever you're making something for the world, I mean, what you do in your home kitchen, I'm not going to, I'm not going to come in your house and wag my finger at you, but for someone in the public eye or someone that's, you know, either creating a cookbook or a magazine, you need to be incredibly conscious of how you're presenting the dish from somewhere else, especially if it's not your, your culture, right. because, you know, at the end of the day, you can read about something in a book, but if you didn't grow up eating it, by the people that created that dish, you're not going to have that touchstone. You know, you're going to have to figure it out. So the reason I wrote that kind of disclaimer at the beginning of the book is I didn't want anyone getting upset that, you know, my recipe for, you know, kanafe, uh, you know, which is a, you know, a Lebanese dish with cheese and, and shredded phyllo. And it's this delicious dessert. You know, Irene, who came from Lebanon, when she got here, she couldn't get the, the right cheese. So she kind of played with the recipe and she realized that shredded mozzarella kind of did the trick, but I don't want you reading it and saying, ah, oh, blasphemy, you know, how dare you? <laughs> because yes, is that authentic? No, you know, in Lebanon, they, they do have, you know, certain cheeses that they use for that, but we couldn't get it here, especially 50 years ago. So our parents had to kind of accommodate. That's okay. That's what should happen. We should make things our own. We just have acknowledged the fact that we customized, we changed it around the reason I said what I said is make Irene's try it. It might be, it might be similar to your mother's and then tinker with it and get it as close to mom's as possible. Either way, hopefully it brings elicits memory. It brings back. Um, and at the end of the day, hopefully it just tastes really good. What is the best canned canned tomato brand that you use? Because I will make a sauce with one brand of canned tomato and it comes out one way. I don't alter the recipe except I buy suddenly buy a different brand. And now the sauce tastes like garbage. You know, tomatoes are a vegetable or actually They're I think technically they are a fruit, a fruit. <laughs> but they are, you know, they, they grow in soil, you know, just like wine, right? They're affected by the soil that they're grown in, you know, the temperature, how long they were shipped, you know, in a truck, obviously who is creating that sauce or crushed or whatever it is that you're buying. I do like Muir Glen organic. I just really, it's M-U-I-R-G-L-E-N. I really like their product. I just think it tastes like tomato. Um, close second, I would say is Pomi. I just like a tomato sauce that tastes like tomato sauce. 
I think it's so funny because people go really crazy about San Marzano and that's also not all created equal. And, you know, due to environmental issues going on in parts of Italy, you're not always getting the best product, even though you're paying the highest price. Yeah. So my suggestion is find one that you really like and then stick to it. Chef, what is your favorite? I kind of like the Palme ones. Those are great ones as well. You know, anything for me at San Marziano, that's kind of the direction I'm going to go in, just me personally, because it's nothing but tomatoes and a little bit of salt, supposedly the best tomatoes in the world. And mm-hmm. if I'm going to make something, I want to use the best stuff I possibly can. Uh, can we go back to meatballs now? Let's do it. Talk to me about your favorite. You've, you've tasted a lot of meatballs in your day, I would assume. So this is my theory about meatballs. And I say this all the time. I think it's actually in the header of the recipe is... Every Italian girl is going to tell you that her mom's meatballs are the best, like, or else we're going to be disowned, right? I do see the very high merit of my mom's meatballs because I think that there are certain tricks that she's used in her meatballs that make them extra delicious. The fact that there is some tomato sauce in the actual meatball mix really brings out moisture. The fact that they're poached, you know, you don't have a crust or, you know, you don't have to add a lot of breadcrumb to get it to stay in the pan. It's poached. It can have very little binder. So you're really tasting that meatball. And, you know, this is kind of my tagline whenever I sign a book and people laugh, but I always write that food is love because I absolutely do think that food translates. So the reason I love my mom's meatballs the best is because they're made by my mom. Period. End of story. Your mom make make terrible meatballs, but you're going to like them better than my mom. Your mom made them. (laughs) (laughs) My mom was an awful cook and would make meatballs with like grape jam. And it was like a Swedish. It was a mess. The whole thing was. Okay. So maybe not your mom's. meatballs. (laughs) Thank you. There we go. (laughs) So when it comes to making meatballs, are you, you know, an 80, 20 ground beef? Do we want to use a little ground beef, ground pork? Are we adding a little sausage to it? What is our protein mixture going into these meatballs? So my joke with my mom's meatball is it's the holy trinity of meats. It's beef, pork, and veal, and equal of each, because they each bring a little thing to, they each bring their own character to the party, right? So, you know, one's bringing the fat, one's bringing the tenderness, one's bringing the flavor. Yeah, they just kind of get all in there and, and, and have fun. Yeah, I, I agree. I think mixing it up is definitely the way to go. I, I'm a pork and meat guy. I've never done a lot of veal in it, but maybe I should try. I'll mix that in it tenderizes it. It's it's like, what I tell people is, you know, you made my mom's meatball right. If you like kind of dig into it with a fork yeah. and it just kind of splits in half. You know, if I'm eating a meatball and it's, and it's like all I'm tasting is bread and it's like softball consistency, then you've lost me. What is the <laughs> ideal circumference of a meatball? Because I've seen some meatballs that are almost the size of my head. I've seen meatballs that are like little Swedish meatballs and everything yeah. in between. I would like, and I always say like a little bit bigger than a golf ball. I think Italian American restaurants that really just tried to like amp it up and like, you know, go big or go home that will come to your table and present you with like this huge meatball with like four pounds of Parmesan cheese. Like, first of all, that's not how Italians eat. Secondly, at that point, I really feel like you're giving me meatloaf. You're not even giving me a meatball. Um, And, you know, if we're going to, if we're going to throw around the word authentic, um, that's definitely not authentic to me. Sometimes my mom will make little, we call them like polpettini, which is little meatballs. Mm-hmm. And she'll put those like in a soup. soup. Like if you ever had Italian wedding soup, there's yeah, those yeah, little yeah. polpettini inside and those are really good too. And you can see these recipes on our website, ctpublic.org slash seasoned. Anna, you also talk about some handmade pasta, your grandmother's as a matter of fact. Mm-hmm. Any tips for making pasta? Yes. 
there is a very important memory for me because when I went to Italy to visit my grandmother, I did see her make those tagliatelle. And if you don't know what tagliatelle are, it's a handmade pasta that you're rolling out into a very, very thin dough. It's all done by hand. And then you kind of roll it on itself with a rolling pin. And then taglia in Italian is cut. You're cutting them to make your strips. So no, no machinery required, just, you know, your two hands and a rolling pin. My grandmother did it so fast. You know, you couldn't believe that she still had all five fingers when she was done. And I just remember watching her do that in her kitchen and being like, this is like magic. Yeah. Like this woman took three ingredients, water, flour, and eggs. And she just created this beautiful ribbon pasta. It was like, she kind of like snapped her fingers and it was there. So, I mean, I, I, I can actually get emotional looking at the cover of my book because it's just, it's like, I feel like it's my lineage, almost like my family crest. And it's incredibly important. And it was funny. I just did a, I've been doing a lot of cooking demos on Zoom, uh, our new reality. This woman um, made arroz con grandules, which is a, a Puerto Rican dish. Rice with pigeon peas. Yeah, I'm Puerto Rican. That's like our staple dish. Exactly. And they eat it on Christmas Eve. And she had lost her family recipe for it. And she found mine in my book. And she said, you know what? I made it. I even was able to get the bagado, which is on the bottom of the pot. Bagado, yeah. Yeah. Very, very crispy rice that everybody fights over, I guess, at the Mm -hmm. end of the night. Yes, we do. We've launched wars over who gets the bagado. I always win. That to me is like the ultimate for me. Like I feel complete career satisfaction that this book really did what it could do when this woman is like, you know what? I did it. It tastes so close to my grandmother's. And I already know what I'm doing this Christmas Eve. My book did that for her. And Haiti, the woman that I met in uh, Hoboken that taught me how to make it, her recipe is now living on in her family and also in another Puerto Rican family who had lost the recipe. So it's like mission accomplished. We're talking with Connecticut chef and recipe developer Anna Francis Goss. She's the author of Heirloom Kitchen. Later in the hour, our conversation with the women of Sanctuary Kitchen in New Haven. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Coming up after the break, we'll learn more about the immigrant women who opened their kitchens to Anna. And if you've ever wanted to make a Moroccan tagine, don't go anywhere. You know, we're so like into our hot pot, Instapot, air fryer. It's like these people had us beat. You're listening to Seasoned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. After creating a project to replicate her mother's meatballs and other treasured but unwritten recipes she grew up eating, our guest Anna Francis Goss used her skill as a chef and recipe tester to document the recipes of immigrant women. Those recipes became the cookbook Heirloom Kitchen. Can we talk about some of your other recipes? We've covered Italy. We've covered Puerto Rico. Let's go to Morocco. Morocco. Oh, the world of tagine. I loved my visit to Morocco via Michigan. Um, the woman Safwa is a college professor, you know, incredibly bright, accomplished woman, but also, again, came here from Morocco, brought all of her tagines with her. I mean, her kitchen is filled with them, different sizes, different types of clay, different decorations on them. I did a lot of research just to learn about tagines and what exactly they do. And it's fascinating. I mean, this is a an earthenware clay 
pot, basically, that they've been using, I would say at this point now, 300 years. And what is so cool is because of the dome top. So if you don't know what tagine is, it's basically like, I would say a rounded dish with a domed top and you put your ingredients on the bottom in uh, traditionally Morocco chicken or beef, preserved lemon, olives, all on the bottom with carrots and onion. And then you put it on the stove with obviously a liquid. And what happens is the liquid evaporates, but because of the dome's top, it gets caught in the top and then it comes back down. It comes raining back down on the food. What happens is you end up with an incredibly tender piece of meat. So why is that important? Well, number one, they weren't getting boneless, skinless chicken breast at the grocery store. They were eating the animals and that's not always the most tender cut of meat. So this pot was creating a tender dish of meat, no matter what part of the animal they have to be cooking that day. And then the other thing that I thought was incredibly fascinating was, yeah, so back then there wasn't a ton of clean water. You really had to reserve how much water you were using when you cooked because you needed it to take a bath and you needed it to drink. So the fact that you put in water once and that water literally is recycling itself back onto that food while it's cooking and you don't have to add more water well, that's a win-win. And I was just like, you know, we're so like into our hot pot, Instapot, air fryer. It's like these people had us beat because we're dealing with surplus. They were dealing with how do we get food on the table in the easiest, less waste possible. So I have a chefy question for you. I was wondering if like, we know that water turns to vapor at 212 degrees. That's when you see the, and it hits the top of the pan. Uh, of, of the tagine and then comes back down into it. Does, do you think that affects the temperature? Does it not get as hot inside that pot? They would cook this over an open fire. So even when, you know, they were probably like moving it around to make sure it was staying, you know, in the book. And even when I'm demoing it for people, you know, you don't want to blast the heat on this thing. Right. You do want to keep it at a low, even temperature. But the fact that it's cooking for so long, everything at the end ends up incredibly moist, juicy, and cooked through. It's interesting how it preserves heat and also allows for everything that needs to happen to happen. Yeah. You know, when I bought the pot, I'm like, there's got to be a reason it's got this shape and I have to know why. Now, I hope Safoy gave you one of her tangines when it was all done. No, no, she didn't. <laughs> and it's funny, each one of them also has like, you know, Story. they're heirlooms, you know, yeah. someone gave it to them, a wedding gift. So they, they're incredibly um, sentimental. I know one of the things about the book is um, some of the meals they make are for celebrations like Christmas Eve or Chinese New Year. And that becomes the gateway to just learning how to make this cuisine regardless of the holiday. And I wonder if you could talk to us about that and how that influenced what went into the book. It's funny how I chose recipes for the book. I originally went at this with my friends, not their parents. Like, okay, we're going to get those recipes written down. It was the same thing as with the meatballs. It's like, what do you want me to teach you? What do you want to know? Which one of the recipes? You know, not the, not the one that she made once. It's always those recipes. So the way I used to frame it to people was when you were away at college and you would call home and say, I'm coming home this weekend. What was the recipe you asked your mom to make? Because if you remember when you're in college and you get homesick, I would call home and my mom would be like, what do you want? And I'd be like, okay, ma, Saturday night, we're going to have this. And then we're going to eat this. And then I want you to make that. And she's like, all right, all right. And I figured other people were like that too. And they were. So it was those recipes. It was the recipes that you can't live without. And yes, a lot of them are tied to holiday. What's also really lovely, you know, when I was making the dumplings with Tina from China, it's interesting because, you know, 
the Chinese food has not only um, significance for a day, but there's numbers attached, there's significance to each food. So for example, and this is a lot of Asian cultures, they eat noodles on their birthday because noodles are long and you want a long life and noodles represent a long life. So one of the recipes in the book is for this very interesting sticky rice cake, but you have to make this cake. You have to put a certain number of, they call them candied plums on top because, you know, there's always a number that represents what you need for the next year. Everything is, is thought out. Nothing is by accident. And, you know, we did make the dumplings and I call them, you know, Chinese New Year dumplings because they do, they eat dumplings for New Year, um, the Lunar New Year, not, you know, when the, the year changes, they, theirs is different, but it, that's very important to them, you know, because of the fact that all the women would get together. It's, it's a huge community event. She said, you roll dumplings and gossip all day. And I just loved that. You know, I loved the fact that all these women were just kind of like, you know, wagging their chins and, and making these dumplings and, you know, talking about that woman that didn't show up or that woman that, you know, was late. I just love that. When you were talking about um, noodles in the Asian culture, it reminds me that there are also noodles in the Italian culture. So when you were creating this book, what sort of commonalities did you see between all the different cultures that were represented in the cuisines that you were that you were making? Yeah, that's a great question. And it definitely um, was amazing to see. And what I think food should really teach us is that borders are arbitrary. We're all the same. We're all eating the same food, just a different version. And another big thing I learned is every country has a dumpling. <laughs> we all take some sort of dough, stuff it with something else, fry it, boil it, steam it. We all do it. My ravioli is your dumpling, is your empanada, is your... So I don't know. That might be book two. Everybody's got a dumpling. Good point. I remember when I, I took my mother to the Lower East Side and we went to this dumpling house and she, in Spanish, she's like, what is this? I said, it's like an empanada, mommy. Just eat it. And she, she took a couple <laughs> of bites. She's like, oh yeah, you're not, you're not wrong. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, um, I, I think, you know, it's it's just so funny because I think even just today, we just spend so much time thinking about how different we all are. And, you know, everyone is very focused on differences. And I think the reality is that we're actually incredibly similar. You can pick someone from literally the opposite side of the world. And I promise if you spend a day with them, you will realize that your values are the same. You're eating the same food. Everyone loves their mother, uh, you know. And uh, I just think that that book really brought that home to me. And, it, you know, no matter who I was cooking next to, they were yelling at me, swatting my, it was like I was with my mom, you know, but 10 minutes in, I was already getting yelled at. So you just realize that, you know, we all really are um, quite similar. We should really focus on that. Food brings people together. That's for sure. And that's, uh, that's one of the most powerful things about it. So Anna, one of the final recipes on our site is, comes from the Dominican Republic, Maria Cruz's Sancocho. Talk mm -hmm. about that dish, because there's never a bad time for a big pot of stew, in my opinion. Again, this is such a funny experience, because when she she actually cooked at my house, um, I forget what was going on in her kitchen, but she, she actually drove here from East New York to Connecticut to cook this dish with me. And she said, I need a big pot. So I got like, you know, my standard. She's like, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> I need a big pot. <laughs> so like, like one that you could put a small human in. <laughs> exactly. I was like, this is the biggest pot I got. She's like, okay, we'll quarter the recipe. I'm like, we're going to quarter the recipe? She's like, you don't realize Dominicans, we cook for 40. 
I'm like, you, I can't put serves 40 at the top of the recipe. <laughs> but it's really, um, it's a kitchen sink stew. It's got everything in it. It's got pork. It's got chicken. It's got, it's got ears of corn. You know, it's got everything in it. And it's just about family. It really is because they make a huge pot of this thing. Like, I, I, I got to see this pot someday that she uses to make it. And it's got ribs, it's got chicken, and then they put it on the table and everybody takes what they want. Mm-hmm. Somebody wants a rib, somebody wants a chicken wing, somebody wants, you know, the piece of corn, somebody wants the piece of sweet potato, whatever you want, it's in there. And um, yeah, I guess one pot to clean, right? <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> Sounds delicious. Well, this has been lovely. And before we wrap up, I just want to give you the opportunity to just, if there's one or a couple of the recipes and the people that you met that really stood out with you that you, and I mean, you've already mentioned a couple, but if there were any others that really resonated with you and that sometimes you're just walking down the street and like, oh yeah, I remember X person. I I do have a funny story. It's actually the last recipe in the book. It was given to me by a woman that is, at this point, I think she's like 85 years young, Fatih from Palestine. Um, Amazing story. Definitely read her story because- I was in tears having her tell it to me, worked in the night crew, the cleaning crew of the United Nations for entire career, has a plaque in her house from the United Nations that she was given. And just an amazing woman raised nine kids. But when I called to like the pre-interview, like we're going to meet and like, you know, your daughter set this up. She's like, I'm going to teach you upside down. I'm like, I don't think we're cooking up. Like, we're not going to be standing on the floor. She's like, oh, no, 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 honey. The dish, it's upside down. It's makluba. And I Googled it while I'm on the phone with her. And it's like, makluba means upside down. And basically, it's a rice dish that you make in a huge pot. And then by some crazy kitchen magic, you flip this thing over and you have a cake. How about that? And it's amazing. And I love her. She's an amazing woman. Obviously, grew up Muslim. Has a Jewish son-in-law, Catholic daughter-in-law, loves them all. Went to her house. She had a Christmas tree, a menorah. It was like the United Nations in her apartment. And again, just a testament to how we can really all just coexist, even in Fetty's kitchen. So it's a cool recipe. It does work. It's delicious. Very, very, very classic Palestinian dish. And uh, yeah, you make it upside down. <laughs> <laughs> make it upside down. And you can spend time Googling it, but you don't have to because Anna's already figured out what it means. Mm-hmm. Well, Anna, we appreciate your time so much here joining us and sharing these stories with us and talking about these amazing recipes. I can't wait to try some on my own. Oh, this was wonderful. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity. Bye now. That was Anna Francis Goss. She's the author of Heirloom Kitchen, heritage recipes, and family stories from the tables of immigrant women. Write those recipes down, everyone. I'm Marisol Castro. On the other side of the break, you'll meet three women from Sanctuary Kitchen in New Haven, where 40 chefs from 11 different countries have continued to cook foods from their homelands for customers throughout the pandemic. The chefs each have their own story that they share through the food that they make. Anybody who comes through our doors who tastes our food can really get that. I'm Chef Plum. This is Seasoned. We'll be back after the break. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. 
And I'm Chef Plum. If you live in the New Haven area, you might already know about Sanctuary Kitchen. Maybe you've seen their packaged items at the City Seed Farmer's Market on Saturdays. Sanctuary Kitchen is not a restaurant. Since 2017, the kitchen has hosted cooking classes, supper clubs, and catered events. They built a reputation for making some of the best Iraqi, Afghan, and Syrian food in the state. Yeah, the best way to understand the unique work being done at Sanctuary Kitchen is to hear from the women who spend their time there. We talked with co-founder and program manager Sumaya Khan, as well as catering manager Carol Bayer Alcaraz and Chef Rawagazi. For our listeners who are not familiar with Sanctuary Kitchen, I wonder if you wouldn't mind describing it for us. This is Sumaya. Uh, Sanctuary Kitchen is a program of City Seed, which is a local New Haven nonprofit. Sanctuary Kitchen, we partner with refugee and immigrant chefs to build economic opportunity and build authentic connections in the community using food. We host um, culinary events pre-pandemic. Those were in person cooking classes, supper clubs, and other events in partnership with local organizations and businesses. And we also run a catering social enterprise that provides regular employment for the chefs that participate, as well as culinary and professional development. Here, you know, we catered for events, dinners, parties, again, (laughs) pre-pandemic. And that has now shifted to an online prepared meal menu that customers can order twice a week. We also sell multicultural authentic products that our chefs make and sell them at the farmer's market and other local uh, retailers. So Maya, I'm dying to tell you. So I put out a call for female chefs and female hospitality and people in the industry on my social media. And the amount of response and the amount of answers that people said to me, I just told Carol this off air, you all are beloved in what you do right now. Yeah, it's been pretty amazing the support that we have from not just New Haven, but all over Connecticut for the work that we do. People just feel really connected with um, not just the food because it's delicious, but the story behind the food, like who is making this delicious and beautiful food. The chefs each have their own story that they share through the food that they make. Anybody who comes through our doors who tastes our food can really get that. How many chefs are we talking about right now in the building? So we have 11 catering chefs employed right now. And we have 40 chefs from 11 different countries in our larger network. So some of the chefs participate in just the events that we host. And then the 11 are actually working in our kitchen uh, daily. Not all at the same time. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) One of those chefs is Rawa. And I'm particularly interested when people study one thing and then grow up and become something completely different. And for you, you studied chemistry. Yes. And now you are a chef. Can you tell us how you you went from studying chemistry in your home country of Iraq to now being a chef? Yeah, so I came to America in 2010. I actually just finished my uh, bachelor degree in science of chemistry. That's right, I'm like study uh, chemistry, but another talent for me and another hobby it is cooking. So when I cooking, like I smell the food, uh, something like back my memories to my uh, to like remember my family. Uh, when we have uh, like uh, some event, uh, all my family like uh, cooking a lot of food. They smell like full on the our house. So when I enter to the meet Sumaya and Carol, I told them I have uh, like a talent to cooking, and they give me this opportunity. 
So I'm really happy to work at Sanctuary Kitchen to uh, support myself, support my family, and also to meet like another uh, woman to be a friend with them. I love that. It sounds like you have quite a community of human beings. Yes. And Carol, you're the catering manager. Also a little bit of a deviation because I understand you are also a children's book illustrator. I love when people's brains work in so many different ways. But can you tell us about your experience there and just uh, what our listeners need to know about what you're all doing there? Well, I came to Sanctuary Kitchen so excited to be working with the organization because for me, it was completely new cuisine, not something that I was familiar with. And I knew that there would be cultural and language excitement for me because it would all be new. The um, original cohort that we had, some of them have moved on, but we have this group of women who come together in, in their countries. They're not, would not always necessarily be friendly with each other. They might not know each other's cultures particularly, but they come together and they share. They share their backstories with each other. They share their fears and their hopes and love of, of having been able to come to America and to find work, which, you know, as women in their countries was probably a little bit more challenging. So, you know, like here we have this goal to help to educate in terms of professionalism and really give these ladies a, a skill set, like a chance to go out. They have the skills. They're great cooks. We're just helping them enhance what they have and make themselves able to go out if they want and have their own businesses or work in other capacities in the food industry if they would like to. The priority this year for you guys, what has been the priority, especially during COVID? I mean, it's been a really strange year for everyone. The biggest priority was keeping the chefs employed. So we really focused on, you know, shifting from our catering model to this curbside pickup. And the support from the community has been amazing. They really believe in what we do and they also love our food. So that was kind of the shift from March to until now, you know, shifting to virtual events was um, kind of a second priority. And so, you know, we were, yeah. And, you know, everybody was doing it. And one thing that we found because of uh, shifting to virtual uh, really allowed our audience to grow beyond Connecticut. So we've had people from Turkey attend our classes. We've had people in California and Toronto. It's been amazing. And for World Refugee Day, we actually partnered with 11 different organizations across the U.S. and Canada to put on an event featuring our refugee chefs and the work that we do. It was so unique uh, to the times, right? Like we would never have thought of doing something like that outside of COVID. It's amazing to hear the stories of the silver linings of when organizations or people have pivoted during the pandemic. You pretty much have global domination now, so it's fine. You should totally <laughs> run with that. But as I as I hear you talk, and um, especially about the community of women who come to the kitchen, how do you make that connection with some of your female chefs? Do they come seeking you? Because it sounds like, well, it was a friend of a friend, which is kind of very old school, and I and I appreciate yeah, it's it's been a range. In our first year when we started, we worked closely with Iris, which is a local resettlement agency here in New Haven, and they referred their clients to us. And we actually have an active application process as well. So if you go to our website, there's a way to join as a chef, to join as an intern, to volunteer. 
And now a lot of these folks that you guys work with or, or have there are the 40 chefs. They're not all formally trained chefs. Like we're talking people who are just amazing home cooks or maybe didn't have any formal training, but still can get out there and, and really throw down in the kitchen. None of the chefs that I'm working with now in the catering part of this um, in, in our 11 member cohort need any kind of cooking lessons. They don't need that. They're phenomenal. What they're struggling with when they come here is the fact that we use a different system. They have to learn the American universal system. They're all used to metrics. You know, it's like a business, which was not something that they were dealing with at home. So in our culinary training, that is a really uh, an important fact that we have really addressed on the team side to make sure that we are addressing all of the things that they're going to need to learn as professional uh, culinary professionals when they leave leave Sanctuary Kitchen, if they choose to leave Sanctuary Kitchen. There's a lot of things. Um, the language, they had an ESL program for one year that was predominantly uh, based on culinary ESL. And Sumaya can speak a lot about that. Without that, we couldn't have even gotten to the place that we're at now. Sumaya, I think that that's really important to explain because the chefs that were able to have taken that really benefited a lot from it. Yeah, so we've developed some training modules for the chefs to participate in. And so the first one was a uh, culinary ESL class that uh, one of our team members, Donna Golden, developed because there's really nothing like it existing. So she is an ESL instructor herself and one of our co-founders. And she, you know, put in the time and research and put together a curriculum teaching English through food terminology. <laughs> um, so everything from this is a, you know, a measuring cup to creating recipes and so forth. And so, you know, a lot of the chefs have taken ESL locally to learn the basics. And then this was to take it at the second step so that they can become more comfortable in the kitchen and in terms of communication. How long is that class? With COVID and breaks and switching from in-person to virtual, it took nine months. Okay. So I want you guys to know this. I went to CIA, the Culinary Institute of America, and I had seven days to do culinary French. Seven days. <laughs> I almost quit culinary school. I was like, this is insane. I've, I've been here the second day and they're speaking French. I have no idea what they're talking about. Oh, wow. <laughs> Let's make it nine months. That would have been much better. <laughs> yeah. Well, and we deal with two different languages in our kitchen. We have Farsi speakers and Arabic speakers. So oftentimes we have to have uh, translations done or right. interpretation um, as part of that. So coordinating all of that is another part of what we do in the kitchen. It must be such a choreography because as I'm sitting and listening to you, Samaya, I'm thinking about the word cup. I'd like a cup of tea is very different than pour me a one cup of tea for this recipe. So if you're new to this country and you're new to this language and you're in the kitchen, it could get scary very quickly, Absolutely. I would think. Yeah, yeah, because uh, in our country, we never use like the measuring cup or the bound. We use kilogram. There's different like, so it's a little bit hard, but uh, because of the classes and always Carol uh, like teach us like in the beginning, when she say uh, you should cook, like, let's say two cups of rice. So every chef ask her, it's a big cup or a small cup. <laughs> so we mean big cup, uh, I think two cups from the one cup. Chef Plum, you know, you're a chef, like experienced cooks don't really follow a recipe, right? You just do your magic. 
I, I drive our producer Robin mad when I give her recipes because I'm like, I don't know. It's up here. It's a technique. Uh, how much is in there? Uh, this much. How it taste good. <laughs> so Carol spends a lot of time teaching the chefs how to write down their recipe so that it's replicable and consistent and standardize it and then scale it as well. You know, it's one thing to cook for your family and it's another to cook for 50, which is actually pretty common with a lot of the chefs. They all came from cultures that they cook for their whole extended family regularly. So cooking for 20 or 30 people <laughs> is actually not difficult for them. That's an afternoon lunch. <laughs> I hear you. I'd like to talk about this idea of community because we know that in kitchens, that is one specific type of community. But at Sanctuary Kitchen, community takes on a completely different meaning because you have such a diverse collection of human beings, sometimes coming from places that are war-torn and at war with one another. And yet here they are in this kitchen sharing something, this common experience. So I wonder if you guys wouldn't mind telling us about what that experience is like and, and what makes it so unique to SK. Our chefs are encouraged to speak freely. It's a safe place. It is a sanctuary in that it's the place to really present their feelings if they have something to say it. Yeah, I was going to, you know, our premise of starting Sanctuary Kitchen is really to build community. You know, we strongly believe that cooking together, eating together is probably the most intimate way of getting to know somebody, regardless of the language you speak, regardless of your economic status, your residential status. You know, there is the community that, that has been built between the chefs. I think I shared one of the pictures. One of our favorites is, you know, chefs from Syria, Iraq, Sudan, and Afghanistan all sitting together around a table and rolling grape leaves. I mean, that's something that would never have happened in their home countries, right? Especially now during COVID when everybody else is so isolated, like coming together in the kitchen has been such a saving grace for everybody because it is that one social contact that even if it's at six feet, um, with masks, that communication is still happening and that bonding is happening. And then on a larger scale, we have the community forming outside of the immediate chef circle. So people who attend our events, um, who come to our cooking classes. I mean, our cooking classes are not like cordon bleu. They're, you know, we're in together and the chefs are sitting with the attendees and getting their hands dirty and talking and sharing. And it's such a cozy environment. And once the event is over, a lot of those relationships that have just started, you know, they continue outside. I love that. That's great. It's really beautiful to see. And it just reinforces how impactful this work is and how necessary it is. Rawa, before we finish up, I wanted to ask you, was there a dish in particular that you were bringing to Sanctuary Kitchen that you weren't sure how it would go over, how people would respond to it? And then you were really surprised when they liked it. Yeah, so... As a main dish, I do uh, biryani. The people really like it. And I do also rice with fava beans. They call it membagilla. It's also really delicious. And as dessert, I do uh, rice pudding. Delicious. Uh, with uh, milk and uh, zafaran and uh, like almond on the top with cinnamon. Yeah, and the cardamom pods in there too and like golden raisins. Yeah. Oh yeah, now we're talking. Yes, and uh, like roll baklava, it's called burma with walnut. So I feel all the food, the people like it and they was ordered a lot. Can you talk to us about uh, the volunteers? Because it takes a village to put something like this together and yeah. you have quite a lot of them. And what do they do? Yeah, I mean, we would not have been able to do our work and do all of this programming without the great support of our volunteers. 
We have about over 200 volunteers in our network since we started, and there's a variety of ways they can be involved. They can come to the kitchen and help with food prep. They can support at events. You can volunteer as an interpreter if you speak another language or a translator. So if you speak Arabic or Farsi or Swahili, French, Spanish, those are all greatly welcome. You can come to the farmer's market and help sell. And lastly, if you have other skill sets, uh, graphic design, development, marketing, cleaning, anything, you know. uh, You'll welcome all hands, regardless. (laughs) (laughs) If you got hands and you want to work, they got a job for you. They'll find something for you to do for sure. Yeah. Right. So uh, deliveries, you know, all kinds. Um, And some of it can be done remotely. Some can be done in person. Um, We have protocols for both that are safe. And, and City Seed, the farmer's market. Every Saturday, 10 to 1 um, in Worcester Square. That's awesome. We have a socially distant outdoor market. I love it. Thank you, friends. We appreciate you so much. Thank you to give me this chance to talk about my field at Sanctuary Kitchen. That last voice was Rawa Ghazi. We also heard from Sumaya Khan and Carol Bayer Alcaris, all members of the Sanctuary Kitchen team in New Haven. Before we go, a reminder, listeners, you can check out a few recipes from Heirloom Kitchen by Anna Francis Goss on our website. Visit ctpublic.org seasoned. You'll find Anna's mom's meatball recipe, a Moroccan tagine, and a big pot of sancocho. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Seasoned is produced by Robin Doyen-Aiken and Katie Talarski. Thanks for listening. See you next week.